morning. It is so great to see all of you out this morning. We definitely want to welcome our many visitors that we have here with us. You're, hope you know that you're our honored guest, and we hope that you would take some time afterwards not to rush off. Let us get to know you a little bit better. Uh, shake your hand and, and thank you more personally for being here with us. This morning we're going to be talking about a problem that faces every single one of us here. If you want to go ahead and be opening in your Bibles, opening up to Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 17, that's where we're going to be studying from this morning. This problem is something that goes without saying, it affects, there's no one, excuse me, there's no one who is unaffected by this problem. And so I think it would be very prudent for us to, to follow along as we study this. This is a subject that I've been asked to talk about um, by another congregation. As some of you know, this, this Tuesday I'll be helping out with the Vacation Bible School at the, the Lakeside Church of Christ. I always get their name and our name mixed up. The Lakeside Church of Christ. Uh, and they have asked me to talk about this topic of the battle with religious error. It helps if I turn the clicker on. The battle with religious error. Now, recently we had our gospel meeting. Landon had, uh, Rudder did an excellent job um, talking about this, uh, this subject a little bit for us. And he went into great detail in chapter 17 uh, in these passages. And he's made my job much easier. I don't have to go into quite as much detail as, as he went into there. But I think we would, be, we would be well to take some time to study how Paul handled religious error, how he confronted it and, and the, the methods that he took. And the reason that I think is good for us to do this is because when we look around today, it is obvious, it is plain to see that there are so many different teachings that are in the world today. We are, we are filled with different denominations. In fact, there are tens of thousands of denominations around the world and each one has its own little teaching and its own little thought about things. Maybe it's who God is. They might teach different things about that. Maybe it's what God requires or even what God allows. And what all this breaks down to is, the other words, there are several different divisions. Divisions of thought on God. And with all these different teachings, it should not come as a surprise to us that there is going to be a lot of confusion and when there's a lot of confusion in the world or in, in anything, in any subject whatsoever, when you have a lot of confusion, you have a lot of error. And that leads us to our study this morning, uh, battling religious error. I hope that by the end of this study, we will have a better understanding of, one, what religious error is, what it is, how to approach it, and how to do so successfully. And, and that, that last one, how to do so successfully, I think is probably the most important of all. If we take nothing away from this this uh, sermon this morning, let's take away how we can do so successfully. So let's go ahead and dive right in and look at what is religious error. And the first thing that we kind of, maybe the obvious answer is, religious error is anything that, that is wrong. When you, when you believe in something that is wrong, no matter how holy you believe into it, no matter how much in your heart you accept it, no matter how strong you feel about it, if it's wrong... It is an error, and that's maybe the more obvious answer to that question, but I think it goes much deeper, and I think we, are, we would be wise to go deeper into this thought. So the first thing I want to look at is religious error is not excusable. Turn over to 2 Thessalonians. Keep your, uh, if you want to mark Acts 17, um, we'll come back to that, but turn over to 2 Thessalonians. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, we, we see of these people who have believed the lies, it says. In verse 9, 
The coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan with, the, with all power, signs, and lying wonders, and with all unrighteous deception among those, who, uh, among those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth, that they might be saved. And for this reason God will send them strong delusion that they should believe the lie, that they all may be condemned who did not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. What's being said here in 2 Thessalonians is, is there are people that will have the truth presented to them. There's not very many of us that don't have the truth presented to us. The truth is available. It's one of the most uh, best-selling books in the world. The truth is available to so many in, in paperback form. It's available in, in uh, hard copy, softback, uh, electronic form, as many of you might be using this morning. We have access to the truth. But to not believe it, or to believe it in error, and to believe a lie, that's not excusable. And that's something that our society likes to, that we like to, in fact, we've come up with the whole ideas that promote the fact that it's okay if you were wrong. We have this whole idea, this whole thought of ignorance is bliss. This idea that, well, if I didn't know better, I can't be held accountable for that. And we see that that is not the case. Those who believe the lie, as it says in 2 Thessalonians, are going to perish. The same idea is taught in the Old Testament in 1 Kings 13. We won't flip back there, but you might remember 1 Kings 13 was the young prophet. The young prophet who God sent to the king to deliver a message, and he gave him specific instructions. He said, after you deliver this message, you are to come back a different way than you came. You are not to eat of the land here. You are not to drink a, 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 any drink from this land. And the young prophet understood it. He even repeated it back. Okay, I understand, Lord. I'll, I'll go back a different way, and I won't eat and I won't drink here. But what do we see? Just later on in the chapter, an, an older prophet comes to him after hearing what he did and says, you know, an, an angel of the Lord told me you should come and you should eat at my house. He lied to him. And, and the young prophet, for, for some reason, unbeknownst to us, he believed. Maybe it was because this prophet was older than him. Maybe it was because he just was naive. We don't know. But he believed the lie. And we see the, the end result of that, the aftermath, was he died. He was killed on, on the side of the road by a lion. And that the lion and the donkey stood by his body. And, and everyone that, that went through there knew that this was, this was more than just a, a chance coincidence. This was punishment. So his punishment for something he had done. The punishment was for him being in error. So it's not excusable. We have to make that point first and foremost, that religious error is not something that we can just brush off our shoulders and say, well, you know, maybe they'll be okay. The reason why we have to make that point right off the bat is because if we love someone who is in religious error, who is believing something that is wrong and we know it's wrong, we have to understand that they are not excused. They are not excused. And if we truly love them, why would we not say something to them? Why would we not try to throw them a lifeline, if you will? Sometimes the reason why is because we're afraid that that's going to, to ruin our, our relationships with them. Sometimes we're afraid of how they're going to react. And that brings us to our next point. People who are in religious error are simply just they're just people like you and me. Sometimes we get this idea in our mind that maybe there's some sort of seven-headed sea monster from the abyss, something you see from a space movie, some sort of creature that when we go and we say that this is what the Bible says and, and you're wrong and what you think, that they're just going to 
transform into something and eat us, or is something bad's really going to happen if I tell that person that? The fact is they are just people like me and you. And how many one of us here has made a mistake? How many one of us here has never made a mistake? I think that's probably a more a more realizing answer, that we are all mistaken in things. If we look over just a few uh, verses from what we're going to be reading in Acts 18, we see of a man named Apollos in verse 24. Now a certain Jew named Apollos, born in Alexandria, an eloquent man and mighty in the Scriptures, came to Ephesus. This man had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things of the Lord, though he knew only the baptism of John. Apollos, this, this great man as it describes him here, he, he is eloquent in speech. He is fervent in spirit. He's going, he's speaking accurately things concerning Christ, but he's in error. He's in error. He doesn't fully understand some things. He doesn't understand about baptism. He's preaching this baptism of John. How thankful do you think he was? How thankful should we be for the actions of Aquila and Priscilla? Verse 26, so he began to speak boldly in the synagogue. When Aquila and Priscilla heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he desired to cross to Achaia, the brethren wrote, exhorting the disciples to receive him. And when he arrived, he greatly helped those who had delivered through grace. For he vigorously refuted the Jews publicly, showing them or showing from the scriptures that Jesus is the Christ. When we realize that religious error is something that is inexcusable, and religious error is something that happens to people just like me and you. It should move us. It should, it should speak to us in a way that, that we should have a desire to tell people that in religious error. And we should have a desire to see the fruits that come from that. The fruits that Aquila and Priscilla saw and all those in Achaia. And, 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 and as we read later further on around the, uh, the area that other people saw the actions that Aquila and Priscilla did played out through Apollos. So these are things that tell us what religious error is. But now we need to understand, or now we need to ask ourselves, how do we approach that? How do we battle with religious error? And that's where Acts 17 comes in. Go ahead and open up, if you're not there already, to Acts 17. And let's look in verse 16. And we're going to read down um, the, through, the, through about uh, verse 21. Now while Paul waited for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him when he saw that the city was given over to idols. Therefore he reasoned in the synagogues with the Jews and the Gentile worshipers, and in the marketplace daily with those who happened to be there. Then certain Epicurean and Stoic philosophers encountered him, and some said, What does this babbler want to say? Others said, He seems to be a proclaimer of foreign gods, because he preached to them Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new doctrine is of which you speak. For you are bringing some strange things to our ears. Therefore, we want to know what these things mean. For all the Athenians and the foreigners who were there spent their time in nothing else, but either to tell or to hear some new thing. So this kind of sets the scene up for us. It paints the scene for where we are now going to be studying, and where we're going to look forward and see how Paul approached religious error. Now let me say right off the bat that sometimes we tend to look at people in the Bible and we view them maybe in the wrong light. I did that with Paul for a long time. As I grew up, I looked at Paul and I looked at this great warrior for Christ, someone who was going in and was tearing down strongholds of thought. And I kind of viewed him, maybe if you, if you allow me, uh, viewed him sort of like a Rambo character. 
He was going in and he was seeing all this stuff was wrong and he's just going to shoot it down and just destroy it. And you know what? That's what Paul was previously. Paul, when he was Saul, that's exactly how he handled his zeal for the Lord. He went in and he mowed down. He, he grabbed people and drug them to jail. He held coats as, as Stephen was stoned. That's who Paul was. But I think we're going to see in these next few passages that Paul has had a change. And it's a, a change that we would be good to pay attention to and to model ourselves after as we try to do the same thing with those that we love, those that we know, that we have relationships with, how we battle religious error. The first thing that I want to note happens right in verse 16. Paul was moved in spirit. It says in verse 16 that he was provoked. His spirit was provoked within him when he saw that the city was given over to idols. Paul sees the idols, he sees error, and he is moved. He fully understands what's going on here. He fully understands that what is happening is wrong, that it will not be excused, and it moves him. Do we have that same sort of motivation in our lives? Whenever we see something like this, uh, uh, maybe it's, it's friends, maybe it's family, when we see someone in, that is in error, are we moved to the extent that Paul was moved? If we're not, we might consider that we might ourselves be in spiritual error. Do we love those around us? As I said before, do we love them enough to throw them a lifeline? Do we see those who are hungry and thirsty for God's word, and are we just, can we be guilty of just standing back and telling them, be full, be full, but not doing anything to help them? So the first thing we might ought to do is examine our own motives before we examine someone else's erroneous motives. The next thing we see is Paul has courage. <coughs> Excuse me. In verse 19, it says, And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new doctrine is of which you speak. We need to ask ourselves, do we fully understand what Paul is about to do? Do we understand where Paul is going before? The Areopagus was not just a few men uh, discussing beliefs. It's not like just a couple of men gathering together and said, Hey, tell us a little more about this. The Areopagus was a place where the city council met. The city of Athens, if you remember when Elaine had talked in detail about this, Athens was the center of Greek philosophy, the center of Greek culture. This was a great university town. This isn't like uh, uh, Nicholasville or Winchester. Really, it goes way beyond the idea of Lexington, but it's more similar where you have the University of Kentucky. This is a, one of the greatest universities of that time. This is kind of where all thoughts and ideas originated from. Uh, almost, if you will, the, it's like the center, the nucleus of the World Wide Web of this day. All these thoughts and philosophies came from here and spread out. And Paul is going into this place where these great and powerful men are making very big decisions, and he's proclaiming to them Christ and, and, and Christianity. And that's got to be very hard. It's got to be very hard because not only is there the fact that they, they have the power, if they will, to, to have him taken out of town, have him roughed up, have him stoned. If you think back, this isn't the first time this has happened. John, John the Baptist, he went before someone with great power and told them something that they were doing that was wrong. He went to Herod and said, you have your brother Philip's wife, you shouldn't have her. And he was beheaded. These things have to weigh on Paul's mind. So he has to uh, be a very hard decision to do this physically. He faces a lot of physical danger. But not only that, as we see is more, more in line with Paul's character throughout further epistles, he's 
he's holding up Christianity in front of these people who have the power to say Christianity is banned in Athens. We don't want to have anything to do with this. Take this weird religion and get it out of here. He is, they have that power to say that. And so he is going into something with great pressure placed on his shoulders. That's got to be hard. You might be asking yourselves, how on earth does someone make a decision to do something like that? I don't know if I could make a decision to do that. If someone came to Kyle Blevins today and said, all right, Kyle, come up here maybe, I don't know, to Congress. You're going to come to Congress and, and tell us more about this Christianity. And, and assuming that Congress knows absolutely nothing about Christianity, and that's not too big of an assumption. But uh, maybe Kyle would feel a little more scared to do that. I might say something along the lines of, well, you know, it, it's similar to that stuff you already believe. Now, that might be something that we would be tempted to say. It's really not that different. You don't, you don't have time to hear it. That's not what Paul says. Paul says, okay, I'll accept this invitation. I will go and I will speak the truth to these people. And so we ask ourselves, how? How did he do that? Well, it starts back in verse 17 with a much smaller display of courage. Therefore Paul reasoned, therefore he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and with the Gentile worshipers and in the marketplace daily with those who happened to be there. Paul started on this lower level. He didn't come charging into the Areopagus, you know, knocking on the door saying, I've got something to tell you all about Jesus. Are you ready to listen? Paul was going to those First, that knew about Jesus in the synagogues. He was talking to the Jews, to the Gentile worshipers there, but even in the marketplace. He was talking to those that he was able to create a relationship with. And that is something that we need to remember. Real evangelism, real effective evangelism starts with real relationships. We have to make those relationships. It, you, you've heard the, the sales pitch that goes, uh, if, if they don't, uh, it, it, they don't care what you know until they know that you care. And it sounds cliche, but it's absolutely the truth. People want to know that you care for them. Paul was making these relationships on lower levels. And watch as, as he has the boldness to talk to those that he can affect. Talk to those that he has some sort of uh, uh, occurrence with. Maybe it's people that he was buying stuff from in the marketplace. People that are like-minded like him that know God in the synagogues. He starts with people that he can have an effect on. And God blesses him with more courage and more opportunities to, to, to show that courage. So the lesson we can take from this example right here is that we need to do the same thing. Maybe there are, are, are friends and family members that we don't have the courage to talk to yet. But, and maybe there are co-workers and people that we just are, are, are struggling to spread that gospel to, spread the news to them. But maybe there are people that we know we can have a conversation with. People that we know need to have this conversation. Have the courage to go to them first. Go to them and talk to them and watch as we show little bits of courage, as we show little desires to work for God. Watch him say, I see this person who's doing work for me, who's showing courage, and watch him, as he did with Paul, bless you with more opportunities and more courage as you grow. And the fact is, and I mentioned this a couple weeks ago in another sermon, the fact is God doesn't want us to be fearful. Turn over to 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy chapter 1. In 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 7, where, I'm in 1 Timothy, excuse me. Uh, verse 7, we read, for, for God has not given us a spirit of fear, 
but of power and of love and of a sound mind. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor, uh, nor of me, his prisoner, but share with me in the sufferings for the gospel according to the power of God. We see that Paul does not, or excuse me, God does not want cowards. He doesn't want people who are too, too fearful to say the truth. <clears throat> in fact, if you remember back over in Revelation 21 and verse 8, I, we, we read that, uh, as I said a couple weeks ago, that first place on this list of people who are destined for the lake of fire is the cowards. The cowards are first place on this list. That should open our eyes a little bit. And, and if it opens our eyes, it says, okay, I, I need to, be, to, to not be fearful. I need to have courage. I need to be courageous. But it's so hard. What do I do? Well, we see in Acts 4 the answer to that. Acts 4, where uh, Luke tells us to pray. Acts 4 and verse 29, Now, Lord, look on, on their threats and grant to your servants that with all boldness that they may speak your word. Again, we see this is Peter and John who have been arrested for, for preaching about Jesus, and they've been forbidden anymore to preach about Jesus. They, they, they've been told by uh, the men there that they say, if you preach about this, bad things are going to happen. Don't do it anymore. And that's got to be hard for them. So they pray for courage. And in verse 31, we see God answers their prayers. And when they had prayed, the place where they were assembled together was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And they spoke the word of God with boldness. What we see from this is God wants us to be courageous. And when we are facing things that makes us feel small, that fill us with fear, He wants to know about that. And He wants to help us. He wants to give us the, the courage that we need to proclaim His word. And to do this battle. And sometimes that courage comes through in a weird way. You know, sometimes like, you know, I come from a four-wheeling community. That's, that's really my background. What I always love to do for, for the past several years is I, we buy a Jeep. And I'm going to fix that Jeep up and I'm going to get it stuck somewhere. And that doesn't sound like a lot of fun, but for some reason it is. And, and in that community there's a phrase. And it's a, it's a derogatory phrase because it makes fun of the people that... That, uh, that it describes, but it says that person, it'll take them uh, probably two or three to get up that hill. And they're not talking about tries, they're talking about beers. They're talking about what they call liquid courage. People that can't do it without it. They, they think that they have to have an alcohol to, uh, beverage to get up that hill. And the idea there is that they don't have real courage. They have to rely on something else. You know, Christians can be the same way. We can be the same way. We can look at something. We can say, okay, I've got to have courage to get through this and be trembling and scared to death. And we say, I've got to have courage. I've, I've got courage. I've, I'm going to do it. I've got courage. And then we go up. Maybe it's, it's someone who, who, who believes in something that's wrong like this in religious error. And we go to them and we've got all this courage, but really we don't. We're trembling. We're shaking. We point them in and we say, if you don't stop what you're doing, you're going to hell. And we turn around and we walk away and we think, whew, I did it. But what did we do? Well, first of all, we didn't have courage. We didn't have the courage to go to them in kindness and to be kind. And the second thing we did is we probably very much just turned them away from anything that we might have wanted to teach them. Paul was kind to these people. He had the courage to be kind. Look in verse 22 when he starts out. In fact, let's read 22 through, uh, through 31. Then Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are very religious. 
For as I was passing through and considering the objects of your worship, I even found an altar with the inscription to the unknown God. Therefore, the one whom you worship without knowing him, I proclaim to you, God who made the world and everything in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he worshiped with men's hands as though he needs anything, since he gives to all life, breath, and all things. And he has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth. And has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings so that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our beings, and as also some of your own poets have said, for we, also, we are also his offspring. Therefore, since we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, something shaped by art and man's devising. Truly, these times of ignorance God has overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent, because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. He has given assurance from the, uh, excuse me, he has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. And we'll stop right there. And that's that's the bulk of Paul's sermon to the to the Athenians. And some some scholars have have talked about how there was possibly more to that. And this was all that that was recorded of it, but this is the bold, this is the gist of what he said to the Athenians. And we think of the kindness that he starts out with. Men of Athens, you are very religious. Let me ask you, is this how many of us today would have started this dialogue? I'm tempted to think that we might have went in and said, men of Athens, you think you are so smart. Look at this place. Center of Greek philosophy and culture, a university town, Boy, do I have news for you. You don't know anything about worship. You don't know anything about religion. Maybe we would say, men of Athens, if you don't change, you're going to burn in hell. Men of Athens, open your eyes. Don't you see that you're worshiping a bunch of rocks? Sometimes that's the approach that we have with people today. Why do we feel the need to teach someone something new, we must completely and utterly decimate their entire belief system first. Does that not show that we have a lack of trust in God's Word? Should we not instead be presenting to them God's Word and letting them come to the conclusion that the things that they believed were wrong and they need to get rid of it? Why is it that we feel like we should just completely tear them down first? so that there's maybe some sort of new structure to build up. How many people do you know in a, in a situation like that, in a, in a mindset where they have completely had everything that they believe destroyed, are going to be in the mindset to go, okay, yeah, I'm ready to grow? Or are they going to be in the mindset of, I'm ready to run away? I'm ready to not have anything to do with this person who has took everything that I know and destroyed it. What we need to ask ourselves is, where is the love in that approach? In 1 John chapter 4, verse 7 through 8, a passage that many of us probably know, we've seen songs that are based off this passage, it says, God is love. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. And if God is love, and Hebrews 1.3 says that Christ is, he is the brightness of God's glory and the express image of God's person. We can conclude that Christ also is love. And what are we? We claim to be Christians. We claim to be people who are imitating Christ. Are we showing that? Do we have love? 
This first, uh, first Corinthians 13 tells us it doesn't matter what we say. It doesn't matter how true it is. If we don't say it with love, we are useless. We are useless to God if we will go out and say things without love. It says we're like clanging brass. Let me tell you, as someone who's been blessed by the Lord with three young, brother, uh, three young sons, but possibly cursed by a mother-in-law who got him a drum set, I know what clanging brass sounds like, and it doesn't sound like music. We listen to it all day long, go somewhere and there's a beat, and I don't know where it's at. Clanging brass is useless. If we don't have love, we are useless in, our, in, in this battle to the Lord. And not only that, we also see that we need to have patience. Turn over to 2 Timothy 4. 2 Timothy chapter 4, Paul exhorts Timothy in verse 1. He says, I charge you therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ who will judge the living and the dead at His appearing and His kingdom. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Convince, rebuke, exhort. Paul had every authority to say this. Why? Because Paul was doing this. This is Paul talking about himself. He said, in Athens, this is what Paul did. It was out of season. But he was ready to preach the word, to exhort those and to rebuke and to convince them and to do it with long suffering. To do it with long suffering and teaching. Sometimes we do come into it with the idea and that, that we're going to go in, we're going to speak our mind to people and they're either going to believe it or we're going to have nothing to do with them anymore. We're going to walk away. You know, the, the, the joke, uh, I don't remember the comedian that said it, but he comes in and says, drop the mic, walk away. Sometimes we're going to walk in say, you're wrong, drop the mic, and we're done. We're gonna... That's it. That's all I have to say. You're wrong, you don't need to, you know, you need change, I'm out of here. It's not patient. No, we need to come into it with the attitude, uh, that, and, and I'm so appreciative of the song that Eric led, Soldiers of Christ Arise, because we need to come in with the attitude that I'm going to put on the garments of a soldier of Christ. I'm going to put on my helmet of salvation and grab my sword of the Spirit and I'm going to grab my shield of faith. This is a battle. And a battle doesn't happen in just seconds. I'm going to go in there ready to fight and ready to uh, approach this and we're never going to forget that this is a battle. But I'm also never going to forget my heart in this battle. And my heart is protected by the breastplate of righteousness. I'm going to go into this battle remembering that, that I'm protected by a breastplate of righteousness. I better be living up to what that means. And I'm not going to forget that my shoes, my feet are protected by the gospel of peace. Not the gospel of fussing, the gospel of going in and, and raising a stink. I'm protected by, or I, I'm clothing myself with a gospel of peace. I need to have this kindness whenever we approach those. Are in religious, who are in religious error. And that kindness is going to cause us to focus on where they are at. Now, a story was relayed to me not too long ago about someone who was trying to convert this young woman to Christianity. And, and for some reason, I don't know why, she, she started in on modesty. She came in and said modesty. Maybe it was something along the lines of, you know, you, you can't dress like that. You can't wear an outfit like that. You can't buy a bathing suit like that. If you dress like that, that's, that's wrong, and you're going to go to hell for that. What's the idea that that woman's going to go away? She's going to leave asking the question, what's wrong with my clothes? My, my clothes, the, my, my choice of outfit, the, the outfit that I bought, that's what's going to send me to hell? That doesn't make sense to me, and it shouldn't make sense to her. Because that's not where she is. She was not there yet. 
Now, I certainly don't want to suggest that modesty shouldn't be addressed. But modesty might not be the place that we need to start with someone who is not a Christian. Sometimes we get the cart before the horse. And when we get the cart before the horse, it's really hard to get anywhere in that scenario. Take, for example, uh, maybe our denominational friends. Sometimes our denominational friends, those that are, that are in the world or in, in one of these various denominations, we look at them and we see a problem. Visibly, there's a problem there that, that is just so apparent to us. And we want to start with that problem. That's where we want to start with. We we'll go in and say, you, you can't have a rock band in worship. Rock bands aren't allowed in worship. You, you can't have a gymnasium. Why do you have a gymnasium? You can't support orphanages, all these things that we're studying in our class on, in the Y book. You can't do these things. And what do we come across as? Kyle Blevins is anti-everything. He doesn't like anything. He doesn't like kids. He doesn't like music. He doesn't like basketball. He doesn't like anything. And that's not the message that we are trying to send. We would be better to remember to start where they're at. Maybe a better approach would be to be courageous and kind and go to them and say, you love worshiping God. I can see that. I love to worship God too. Let's get together sometime. Let's study. Maybe we can see that there are ways that we can worship God better. Maybe we can see that there are ways we can worship God incorrectly. We want to make sure we don't do that. Let's find a way to start where they are at. And this requires focus. This requires a lot of focus. When we should start where they're at, that also means that we're going to be patient. We're not going to jump ahead to things like modesty. We're not going to jump ahead to things like marriage, divorce, remarriage, the Holy Spirit, the work of the church. We're going to start wherever it is they are, and we're going to be prepared to also keep their focus. Jesus did this in John 4. If you want to look back at John 4 and, and remember the account of the woman at the well. Starting in verse 7. Jesus, excuse me, in verse 2, John 4 and in verse 7. A woman of Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Then the woman of Samaria said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? For the Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God, and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you a living drink. Water. So Jesus is going into this, and, he, and he's going in to teach her a little bit about himself and about God. And so we see in verse 11, the woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. When then, Where then do you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as, w- uh, as well as his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered and said to her, Whoever drinks of this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I shall give... Uh, him will never thirst, but the water that I shall give him will bring, <clears throat> become a fountain of water springing into everlasting life. The woman said, Sir, give me this water that I may thirst, nor come, uh, nor come here to draw. So again, we see that he's still teaching her more about himself and what he has to offer. He tells her to go call her husband. And the woman says, that I have no husband. He says, you, you have answered well. I know that you have five husbands, or you have had five husbands. The one you have now is not your husband. Um, you spoke truly. So now we see all of a sudden the woman is going to become very uncomfortable. She starts changing the subject. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our father worshiped on the mountain, and the Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place where one ought to worship. So we see here all of a sudden he's talking about himself. He's talking about what he has to offer. He's talking about God. And now she's saying, Okay, let's talk about worship. 
Let's change the subject. This is getting too real for me. And Jesus answers her question, but watch how he, polite, or how he kindly brings it right back to and stays on topic. Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain in Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We know what we worship for salvation is the Jews. But the hour is coming and now is when true worship will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship him. God is spirit. Those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming who is called Christ, when he comes, who will, uh, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Look how she, she wants to change the subject away from what Jesus started out, We're talking about God, talking about himself and what he offers, and how Jesus does answer a question, but very quickly turns it right back to what he was talking about. So oftentimes we let ourselves get distracted by these questions that, that are meant to throw us off and we might get into to a conversation with someone and we're being kind and we're being courageous, but things are getting a little real. They're starting to realize maybe I am wrong and I don't want to talk about this anymore and I've got to find a way out of this. And, you know, sometimes it's best to let people talk their way out of it and to be patient. But we need to always stay focused for when they come back. And we need to pick right back up on where, on where they are at and what we were talking about. <clears throat> Likewise, Paul does the same thing back in Acts. He stays focused. He, he looks at them and he sees where they are. says they believed in a God in whom they didn't know. You believe in a God in whom you don't know? Let me introduce him to you. <clears throat> and he does this by saying, look, God is. This unknown God you worship uh, you don't know him, I'm about to change that. Hang on for a minute. Let me tell you more about what he has done. He made the world, in verse 24, says he made the world and everything in it. Now what this would have said to them, this was so much more than just a statement of what God has done. This is also a statement of who it is that you worship besides this unknown God. All those things you worship, the materials that they're made with, the, the item themselves, you, yourself, God made all of that. This unknown God made everything. This would have included those things. But also, he says in verse 26, he also made from one blood every nation. Again, he's saying something that speaks straight to the heart of the Greeks. The Greeks, especially in Athens, they thought of themselves kind of as a cut above everything else. They were a very uh, a sort of racial group of people. They thought that they were very smart. This was the center of, of, of the world in their eyes. And so they were very great. And now this man is coming and saying, that everything is made from the same blood, that this unknown God that he's proclaiming for them not only made all the things that they, that they say are other gods, so therefore made these other gods that they worship, but also made them from the same blood of these people that they would have considered as heathen, as unlearned. They're all from the same. He's staying very focused, though. He's starting where they're at, and he's going on and carrying the same idea because then he keeps on going, still talking about God, and says, here's what you should do with this information that I've just provided you. He says to repent. And that's this idea of a cynic. We, we realize that this means more than just repent. They needed to believe and to repent and confess, to be baptized, remain steadfast. We understand that. But he says you need to repent because this God, this unknown God that you all worship, he has set a day of judgment. And he, is, and he has set a day of judgment that a man who has been raised from the dead will be doing the judging. He says all that uh, back in verse uh, 31. Because he appoints a day of which he will judge the world and righteous by the man whom he has ordained. He has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. Look, at he's finally right here in verse 31 where we see his sermon due to an interruption uh, of some sort conclude that he finally introduces Jesus 
Paul didn't start with Jesus. He couldn't start with Jesus. So oftentimes we might think if, if I was in this situation, as I did this morning, I might have just came in and said, okay, open up your Bibles to Isaiah 53. And they would look at me and say, my, my what? The Isaiah 53, that's not what they knew about. They didn't know about the God of the Israelites. They knew about this unknown God. And so he starts where they're at, takes the information that they do know, takes the good things that they, do, that they were doing, and he works from there to teach them about God and ultimately about Christ. These are some things that we need in re battling religious error. We need to be moved in our spirit. We need to be courageous. We need to be kind, and we need to be focused and start where people are at. But I said the most important thing is we need to be successful. And how are we going to do that? Excuse me. How are we going to be successful in spreading uh, or in taking this battle to those that are in religious error. Well, let's ask ourselves, was Paul successful? I mean, when you look at it, he was cut short because he brought up the resurrection. They, they, these Epicurean and Stoics, they didn't believe in life after death. They mocked him. Uh, minimal people are recorded as being saved. It talks about two people by name and others with them. Peter, on the other hand, in the day of Pentecost, it talks about thousands of people being saved. So statistically, that doesn't seem very successful. History tells us that there was no church found in Athens for some time after this. So, so was he really successful? The answer to that question is absolutely. Paul was successful. Why was he successful? Because Paul took action. Like Philip in the Ethiopian eunuch. When, when God sent Philip on this journey to speak to the Ethiopian eunuch, Ethiop, uh, Philip got up and he took action. And he went and he spread the gospel. Peter and Cornelius, when Peter was called to go and speak to Cornelius, he took action. He got up and he went and spread the gospel. So was Paul. When Paul had the opportunity to go into the Areopagus, he took action. And that is what success should be measured after. We might look at and say, but Paul didn't convert many people. Not very many people were converted in this action. And that right there lies in the problem that so many of us have today. That problem holds so many of us back, keeps us from doing the work of the Lord. Because we're afraid we're going to be like Paul. And we're not going to have a lot of converts. And, and so things aren't going to be, it's, it's useless. We shouldn't do it. That's not what 1 Corinthians 3 tells us. Who then is Paul? And who is Apollos but ministers through whom you believe? As the Lord gave to each one, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. So that neither he who plants is anything, nor he who waters, but God who gives the increase. This is how we measure success. Success is not measured through converts. It's measured through contacts. How many people are we coming in contact with? How many people are we sharing the gospel with? How many who people who are in religious error are we going to and talking to and trying to teach? Religious error affects people just like you and me. Religious error is not something to be feared. It is not something to be excused. It is something that we must battle. We must battle it by being moved, courageous, kind, and focused. And as I said, our success is going to be measured off of how uh, off of what kind of action we took. Are we going and are we telling? <clears throat> if you want to go ahead and take out your songbooks, take out your songbooks and open them up to number 284. 284.
284, there's a great, or what will your answer be? And I want to share with you three things this morning, three little things that I think are important for all of us to know. Put these little, these little facts in the back of your heart and, and hang on to them. The first one I want to share with you is God loves you. He loves you enough that as John 3.16 says, He gave His Son that you would not have to perish. He gave His Son that you could be forgiven for anything that you have done wrong. But that's the first thing I want you to remember. The second one I want you to remember is God desires you. He desires you. That is different than the first. That is more than just God loves. God desires you means He is now asking of something from you. He desires you to believe. He desires you to repent of the sin that is in your life. It means He desires you to turn away from those things that are against His, His law. He desires you to confess that you believe in His Son, Jesus. And He desires you to be baptized into Jesus' death. That means it's to, be, to be buried as Jesus was in death, be buried in water. And as Jesus was raised from death, we are too are raised in likeness. We are raised to a new life. He desires us to remain steadfast. Maybe you've already met the desires of all these things. Well, then remember this. God, this third one, God will never leave you. He will never leave you. No matter how bleak a situation is, no matter how dark it looks, know that we can always turn to God. You know, it's said here in, uh, in Acts 16. <clears throat> and in... Uh, verse, I've lost my verse, in verse 29, I apologize, I have lost my verse, excuse me, verse 27, it says in verse 27, so that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for him and find him, I'm going to ask you now, has sin put you in a situation where you feel like you are groping for the Lord? but cannot find Him? This is why I bring this up, that God will never leave you. He is always there. He is waiting for you, encouraging you to turn from the sin and find Him. Waiting, for you to, waiting to accept you back into His fold. But you need to know that He won't wait forever. How much time do you have left? An hour? A day? A year? I ask that you consider all these things. Consider your own soul's salvation as we stand and sing the song that's been selected.